What's up, everybody? This is Rafael Garcia back on the August 24th edition of the MMA Ratings Podcast. And we have a pretty decent show planned for you today, guys, because not only is it Schwann and myself here to talk about all of the news from this week, and boy, do we have some news to talk about, but we also brought on Scott Harris, who is a man who knows the sport and can definitely talk just about as much as we can about everything that we're going to cover today. So first and foremost, I want to say thank you, Scott, for joining us. Thank you for taking the time out and chatting with us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Good week. Uh, awesome. Awesome, man. We, I'm, I'm glad. This is, a right, this is a good week for it because we got quite a bit to talk about from John Jones to a big fight that's going on this weekend. But before we get into that, let's talk about you a little bit, man. Um, give us a little bit of, of a background. If I am a new MMA fan, if I'm a new sports fan and I wanted to read Scott Harris's work, where can I find it? It's all at Bleacher Report, uh, their MMA section. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm exclusive there. Um, I've been with them for probably about um, six years now. I do um, a few different sports. I do a little bit of college basketball. I do a little bit of um, summer and winter Olympics when those are on. But I would say 80% it's, uh, it's MMA. So, yeah, real, uh, real immersed in that uh, sport. And how did you find yourself um, not only writing for Bleacher Sport but writing about MMA in general? How did you find yourself down this path? Well, um, it started – my uh, interest in MMA is, you know, happened way back in the old days of the UFC and Pride. Um, I had a friend um, who had had tapes, and I never asked him where he got them. But, you know, he would call me over, and we would just watch. I mean, I was a huge Crow Cop fan, for example. You know, just going. That's how far back it kind of goes for me. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I never trained or anything like that, but I've just been a fan of the sport for a real, real long time. Um, I was in college and started a blog about um about i went to maryland so it was about maryland basketball terms. so i went over to um you know blog well, got a little bit of a following or whatever and then i went over to bleach report with that so i was doing um some college sports for them and then i switched from college sports over to uh to mma i mean i just had the bug i felt like i had to write about it so uh you know one thing led to another and there i was well, man, that's definitely that's kind of like you know a lot how a lot of us really got started in this field. What are some of the major moments in MMA that you remember covering? What are some of the moments that like will ten, twenty years from now you'll still be able to sit down and say, "I remember when I covered this." Uh, a lot, many, but I would say that uh, there were a few that stuck out. You know, for what I covered live, there was uh, UFC 172, which is uh, was in Baltimore, and John Jones defeated um, Glover Teixeira. But earlier, and that was great, that was a great fight, but earlier in that card, Chris Beal's flying knockout of, uh, it was a flying knee on, I believe it was Patrick Williams, uh, came out of nowhere. And that might have been the loudest sort of zero to 60 crowd reaction I've ever been in a building for. So I'll never, I'll never forget that. I was in the building when, um, when uh, Anderson Silva stole a, Forrest Griffin soul at USC 101. You know, that was that was a great one. I was um, at Madison Square Garden for uh, their, for the UFC's first event when uh, Conor McGregor defeated uh, Eddie Alvarez. So, um, you know, I feel pretty lucky to have been at, you know, some pretty good events over the years, but I think those are kind of what stands out for me. 
that's what's up, man. Those are definitely some interesting moments. I remember that uh, that flying knee knockout that kind of like caught everybody off guard because it was kind of a sleepy show, but that moment kind of stole the show. And it's interesting that we're talking now because we have quite a bit to talk about from this week that is just some major news moments. You know, we all thought waking up uh, I guess on Sunday, we all thought that this week was going to be nothing but uh, Floyd Mayweather and Conor McGregor talk, which it kind of still is in a sense. But um, John Jones didn't want to be forgotten about, and he kind of put himself in a, in a, in a pretty interesting predicament. Uh, Schwan, what are some of your early thoughts on what has gone down with John Jones this week? Um, disappointment. Actually, actually, I feel kind of frustrated for the guy, to be honest. Because, I mean, he had just kind of done his reclamation. He got back on top. He reclaimed his title. His image was getting a little bit bigger and a little bit better. And he had the huge challenge with Brock Lesnar. It seemed like the whole world was at his fingertips again. And then, in true John Jones fashion, something comes out of the blue and, and basically el- eliminates all the goodwill and all the progress he's made over the last year, year and a half. And it reminds us why he, he hasn't been competitive and why people don't have a lot of faith in his character or his judgment or his ability to constantly compete as a fighter. Scott, when you heard the news about John Jones' week, what was your initial reaction? Did you want to take a pause and say, I can't believe this? Or was this something that didn't surprise you? What, what was your first thought when you saw that John Jones had filled a drug test? Couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe it. Uh, you know, he he spent so much time in the run up to um, the rematch with Cormier, talking about, you know, how how you know he was a new John Jones, and you know even going so far as to use Cormier's sort of drug use PED accusations as motivation, and you know just kind of soundly rejecting, you know those those accusations. Then, you know, for him to 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 fail this test, I mean, for a for a steroid that got famous in in the first place because of um, its use by the uh, East German Olympic team in the 1960s. I mean, the, uh, I just, I couldn't believe it. I mean, you know, he's he's 30 years old, and you know, it's like Schwan said, he was at the top of the world again. He had reclaimed his status as the goat. You know, everybody was just kind of throwing flowers on him. And now, you know, if this sticks, you know, four-year suspension, he's the John Jones that we know is gone. He's lost six years of his prime. He'll use he'll lose another four, thirty-four when he comes back. It's not that he can't fight again, but um, just a just a, a, a devastating blow, uh, of course, for him. And I think I think for the entire sport, you know, we kind of lost our goat. And you know, I looked at this moment and. and it's not, I'm not going to say I didn't want to believe it, but it was just like a, are you kidding me type of moment. Because when I initially saw it, I, it was a friend of mine had shared a post on Instagram, and he's been known to play jokes like that. So I was kind of like, okay, what's going on? Two clicks later, I'm like, the, world, the world's falling apart because this guy has failed uh, another test. And it's interesting to hear not only his reaction and you know his shock and all, but you know his team's rallying around him. Uh, Mokikawa, of course, is coming out saying that they didn't know. Uh, is, is basically like, I don't want to say a cover up, but everyone's rallying around him now. Even Usada is saying that he's innocent until proven guilty to kind of let the let the process play itself out. But everyone is responding like a, oh my God, I'm done. I'm washing my hands of this guy. Is that the right response to have, or should we take a wait and see type of? Uh, thought process with this I, I think that's a good point to make you know it's we we absolutely should let uh, the process play out um, 
assuming it's true though, you know, I think, I think the, um, you know, the, the, um, I don't know if excuses is the right word, but just kind of the protection, the, this layer around him, you know, including from his manager, trainer, and others. You know, it, it's like it, at, one, at some point, it, it, there's like a fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice, or fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me, that, you know, that dynamic um, starts to kick in. And I think that has really kicked in for Jones now. My, my take on it is, is, two, is I have two points. The first is, of course, you have to go through due process. That's, he's allowed that. That's fair. But when you're in circumstances like the ones he is, you really, you don't get the benefit of the doubt. He's done so much. And it's been such, I mean, like, this is just something as it pertains to the sport. All the other stuff comes into play now because they're like, if you're terrible enough to walk away from an accident where you injure a pregnant woman, how far is it a stretch to think you'd use performance enhancement, performance enhancers? If you're willing, if you got busted for it, a couple of, you know, like a year ago, and you had to cancel fight, how far is it to think you'd do it again? If you're willing to do cocaine and get drunk the nights before your fights because you said it gives you a way out, it's not a far stretch for people to say, even though it's two different things, for people to say, hey, he would do this. And then, so even the, the specter or the shadow or the hint that he's involved in this is going to stick with him. Even if he somehow gets out, people are just going to figure it's a technicality, He's getting over. It's because he's a money maker. Because the UFC can't afford to take the hit. Yada yada yada. Everybody's going to figure he's tainted from this point on. It's going to be really hard to to spin this in any positive way, because very rarely do guys get caught and they ever actually get out of facing the full punishment. I mean, rarely does that ever happen. So if it happens on his behalf, it looks suspicious. And my second point is. I, I like Jackson Wink as a camp. I, the guys seem very cool. They seem down to earth. They seem very intelligent. But I keep wondering, when does this blow back on them? Like, all this stuff that's happened, the crazy stuff, the accidents, the, the PED thing, every, all this stuff has happened underneath their watch. And I know the trainers aren't around him all the time, and they can't control him like that. But in another camp, if a, train, if a kid was out of control doing this stuff, they would hold the camp accountable for putting him in position repeatedly they would bear some of the brunt from this, and they haven't really caught any flack for any of this, any of this John Jones stuff. And they're the people who are doing the strength and conditioning and the training and around him full time. They're the guys who are supposed to get them straight. When do they start catching some flack for this? That's a really good point, actually. And I just want to add that um, Frank Mir, who's also affiliated with Jackson Wink, has failed a drug test for the same drug. Mm. Just putting that out there. I didn't even realize that. Yeah, I mean, it's not, you're not, you're not, you're, you're not you can't make an accusation but I mean, you've seen other you've seen other camps where people have acted crazy, and um, those people have those camps have caught in a lot of flag. They've got a bad reputation. ATT had a bad one for a while because guys kept getting busted for that and for other issues, and they kind of caught some flag. But Jackson Wink always seems to get away like they're Teflon. Nothing sticks to them, and I I don't know why that is. I'm not saying you should accuse them, but how do they not get any sort of suspicion towards them? So yeah. let me ask this: Do other other than Frank Mir have they had any other fight? Like I'm trying to think of any other fighters on that group that have had any issues like this. Are are there any others that kind of stand out? No, I, I don't think so. And, and I'm not even talking about like just a drug issue. It's just like, and I, I, it hasn't been a trend with them. But usually, if you have, a, it's like if you have a football team, you have a high-profile quarterback, and he constantly gets in trouble. At some point, it goes back on the organization. If you have a basketball player, at some point that people start asking, how are you running your organization? Okay, yeah, you're not his boss, you're not his parent, but you still employ this guy. You still give him the skills to perform. Why do you keep doing this in, in light of the person he is and the fact that he's 
breaking laws or getting you involved in all this stuff. And I'm not saying it's like a trend throughout their fighters, but usually, you know, if you had Cam Newton doing this or Peyton Manning involved in some stuff like that or Tom Brady, it would, it would come back on their organization to some degree. LeBron James is doing stuff like this. It would come back on the organization. But this isn't coming back on, on Jackson Wing. People are saying how it's going to impact the UFC. Not one person is asked, how does this affect Jackson Wing? This is your biggest star caught up in two of the biggest scandals of PDs in most recent years as far as big names and relevancy. He's probably one of the biggest guys. Frank Mir is on the way out. John Jones is still in his prime and still with the GOAT. That's a much bigger story than Frank Mir or some of these other lower-level guys getting busted. One more thing I'll add for whatever it's worth is, you know, I've got some familiarity with Jackson Wink. And, um, you know, from what I understand, and this is, this is totally anecdotal, but, um, you know, he, I have the impression that John Jones is very much someone who kind of keeps his own counsel. You know, I mean, when he's within the walls, you know, he's, he's, you know, he's there to work and he's a, he's a part of the team. And it's not that he's not a part of the team when he's outside the walls. But, um, you know, he's someone who, um, you know, seems to um, make a lot of his own decisions. So for whatever that's worth. So let's Fair turn enough. the attention on to the UFC now. You know, they... Oh, wait, they wait. Well, go ahead. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. I had a question for both of y'all. Now, it, it, this might affect the UFC, but let's say he gets suspended. The UFC still has his rights, if I understand correctly, right? Yes. What, is he, what does he do for a living? Like, what, how does he make money? He, he mentioned money after his last fight, saying he hadn't fought in a while, so he needed money. He wanted the biggest payday. If he's suspended for two to four years, what, what does he do? Because I can't imagine the UFC letting him go so he can go somewhere else. So what, what does he do to su support himself and his family? <laughs> That's a good question. I have no idea. I mean that's a very strong question there. There is like there really isn't anywhere he can go because they can they do have the ability to limit what options he he takes. So, I mean that's there. And and what's interesting is that from that standpoint, you know, he doesn't have the goodwill with the organization to be able to go do X, Y, and Z, and they allow him so so they can definitely put a a, a stop to him really kind of doing anything outside of that. Now I'm not sure if they would or if they wouldn't, but that's a question that needs to be asked. What yeah, I wanted I never to hear anybody asking, and I don't understand why they would why they would let him go. Like, what is that? How does that help the UFC if we let him fight in overseas and risen? What does that do for us? Yeah, that, that definitely raises some questions there, man. But I, and I also wanted to kind of look at this from the UFC standpoint as well, too, because they were in a, at a situation where here it is. They have they got their their third big name back. You know, they lost Rousey earlier this year. Um, they're on. I don't want to say they're on the verge of losing. Uh, Connor Hill, he has his, his options, but you know they got John Jones back. The show did was uh, approximately eight hundred fifty thousand buys, so they had someone that, that they could build. They were talking about him fighting Brock Lesnar. There was mention of him fighting Stipe, so he was on the cusp of becoming someone that they can build around, and that's completely gone. Not only does it impact him, but it impacts guys like Alexander Gustafsson, who was looking for that big rematch. It impacts somebody like Stipe, who is a champion but doesn't have that big name appeal. This would have been an opportunity for him to get that that shine and get the rub, for lack of a better term. Let's talk about some of the impacts to the UFC. What was your first thoughts? Um, Scott, you can go first. What were your first thoughts about how this situation impacted the organization as a whole? Bad, really bad. Um, you know, there, uh, Rousey's gone. Uh, you know, Connor, who knows? You know, he, he might not even come back to MMA at all after this boxing match. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure I, you know, feel that way, but... You know, there's there's talk that he he might be um, he might be done fighting. Uh, 
So Jones, you know, and, and that immediate heat that, um, you know, his call out of Brock Lesnar created was, um, you know, something that I, it felt like to me the UFC was very eager to hang its hat on. And you guys both know, I mean, how star-driven the UFC is. You know, it's so individualistic. You know, you, you do need, you know, a couple of people that you can really put on the banners. And I think, um, you know, now without Jones and without the other two, uh, maybe, uh, you know, there's really, I don't see anybody, you know, there's a lot of great fighters, but but no, not that kind of star power. So, I mean, I think, you know, it's almost like, uh, you know, an apple core, you know, like this really just got inserted into the apple and, you know, the core just got... Uh, just got ripped out. So what's a tough one for the UFC? Uh, my my whole take was that I had a, I had a, a similar take to Scott, but it was a little bit different. Like Jones has never been the star that McGregor or Rousey's been. Like on that card that sold so much, that was over a beef that had been building for the past two three years, even two years before they actually fought. And then also it had like you think of the undercard. I mean Lawler versus Cerrone is going to bring in a certain amount of fans. Nobody's going to tell me that didn't impact the bottom line. But the thing they, the, the best thing that John Jones brought to the table was that he was a big name star, you know, as big as he could be, but he was their legitimate big name star. Ronda Rousey, as good as she was, for the most part was beating up on a bunch of girls who weren't her athletic equal and were so, so limited in certain aspects of MMA that she got, she was able to dominate with a one dimensional skill. Conor McGregor, even though he's beat key big names, He's never defended his title. He's never come close to cleaning out a division. He's never beat like the elite among the elite. And this is kind of for trend among the UFC's biggest name guys. They've beat a lot of the other guys, but they haven't consistently beat elite guys. Donald Cerrone would fall into this group too. John Jones was the elite guy who had a push from the UFC who had beaten everybody in his division and had constantly faced the best in his division and dominated. He was a guy who was bulletproof from that point. Like people would say, Connor hasn't fought this guy, he hasn't fought that guy, he hasn't fought this guy. Ronda only beat up on these this level of athlete, this level of fighter. John Jones was immune from that because he was beating the very best and making it look easy. So he was their legitimate star, like their legitimate sportsman star, the one they could point to when they say the UFC is an act, it's an entertainment product. Look at John Jones. He is the best. There's no lightweight, light heavyweight out there who can compete with him. There's hardly any heavyweights that can compete with him. He was their star who they could use as a legitimate person to legitimize the sport and show their level of competition. And now he's gone. So now you have Rousey who's gone, and McGregor, even if he comes back, people still doubt his legitimacy as a champion because A, he never defended his first title, and B, instead of defending the second one, he went to go box Floyd Mayweather. So it kind of puts into that whole entertainment, we're all about the money, we're not about the purity of the sport and the spirit of competition. And they lost that with Jones. So when you think about them losing that situation there, like what, how do they recover from this? Um, you know, we're going to talk about Connor and Floyd later on. Is there anyone on the horizon that they can even look and say, okay, how, who can we build around now? Because they've really, at, you know, at minimum or at most, I want to say that they've lost this man for about four years or so. Is there anyone that's on the horizon that you think that they could even begin building around that could help them kind of overcome this matter? I think about Francis Ngannou. You know, I think I think he's a I think he's a uh, you know incredibly fun to watch and you know just a, a really compelling backstory that you know can be told and understood, you know, no matter, um, you know, what kind of an audience you're trying to reach. Um, you know, I, I want to say, uh, Ioana, we'll, we'll see. 
you know, so far, you know, she just, a, I think women's uh, straw weights in general haven't uh, appeared to, um, you know, kind of have the traction that, that um, maybe uh, a lot of hardcore fans would, would like them to have. Um, if anyone's going to break through, it's her. So, so, you know, we'll, we'll see there. Uh, I think, um, you know, I, I don't think, uh, you know, I'm not a big kind of GSP believer anymore. You know, I mean, the, the GSP Bisbing fight, you know, I guess that's going to move the needle, but that, uh, you know, that doesn't excite me. We'll see how many people it does excite. I think Cyborg, you know, I think she's got some years left. And, you know, if they can, if they're able to find some, some, uh, you know, reasonably credible opponents that will get in there with her, then I think, um, you know, her star can, will continue to rise and she's certainly a charismatic person, but, um, certainly no, uh, you know, no, uh, magic bullet, if you will, at least I don't see one. Yeah, I think the hard th part about Jen okay. go, well, the name that kind of lipped off the page to me would be someone like a Max Holloway. I think that he is someone who yeah, can, can definitely draw some attention. He, he also has a great backstory and he kind of has a personality that I want to use the term. I want to use the term electric personality for lack of, for lack of a better one right now, but I feel like he's someone that draws people he draws people in and he puts on the type of fights that people like to see. He also, he, I don't, I'm not going to say he doesn't have a lot of people available at featherweight for him to fight. Cause other than Frankie, he's really fought a lot of the guys that are there, but I think he's someone that could be kind of built into the next kind of star for the organization. It's going to take some time, but I think that they do have a, um, a good prospect there. Uh, yeah, I, I would agree with you. As you said earlier, the, the the bad part about Holloway is he did the majority of his work in division prior to becoming a star and prior to, prior to getting the championship belt. Like, he's beaten almost everybody who's somebody in the division. I think Joanna, when she fights Rose Namajunas, whether Rose wins or Joanna wins, I think that's a good one of them because they have fan bases. And I think that if this fight's promoted the right way, they could really do some numbers because of the backstories and the personalities of both people involved. Um, the hard part about about replacing, especially somebody like Jones, is that when he won the title, like, just look at the list of names he, he got to fight. He, he fought all these big name guys who had histories in mixed martial arts. So it's like he had a buildup. He got to fight Shogun. He fought Rashad. He fought Quinn and Rampage Jackson. Like, he was fighting these guys that that basically were giving him the rub. And though he never really took over as a big seller or like a huge star like McGregor or Rousey, that gave him that legitimacy. And it kind of brought those fans over to him. Maybe it didn't showcase itself as far as million dollars, you know, million buys or anything, but he was, he was a reliable pay-per-view seller. Legitimate, top-notch, high-quality opponent who had reputations and resumes that just built him into a, a, a larger-than-life fighter. Joanna doesn't have a lot of fighters in her division who've got that kind of a resume. It's fairly new. Cyborg doesn't even have girls who compete in her weight class who have resumes. So it's fairly new. Holloway has people in his weight class, but I mean, he's beaten most of them before he got really in the public eye. So it's like, how do you build him in that manner when you have a limited amount of resources and a limited amount of opportunities attention from the MMA medium, like really, real over-the-top attention, much less the the crossover media, if you understand what I mean when I say that. 
Yeah, definitely do. We definitely did. The last question I want to ask you both, um, and I want you to, I want to play, um, not matchmaker, but I want to play a little fantasy here. If you were John Jones' manager right now, if you were Milky Kawa and you had his ear right this minute, what would you say to him? Let's start with you, uh, Scott. I would, um, I, I would say work the uh, USADA process as much as you can. And, you know, honestly, you know, like, let's just say for the sake of this discussion that, you know, that he is found guilty and he does get the four year suspension. I mean, I think at that point you, you know, you, you look to pivot, you know, you, I don't think you sort of walk away from MMA entirely, but, you know, and, you know, I think you're right that the, U the UFC is not going to, not going to relinquish his rights. So I don't think he can just go overseas and fight or anything like that. Um, you know, I think you start to look at things like speaking engagements and seminars and, you know, just teaching at Jackson Wink, you know, I mean, that's, that's a good living. That's a good life. Um, you know, so I think you just, you, you don't just kind of, I, I think the wrong move is to just sort of hunker down and put your hands over your head and, you know, just sort of wait it out. You know, four years is too long to wait. You know, you kind of have to have those, those hard discussions as painful as they may be. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to agree. He's going to have to have a serious discussion with them. And I, it's a, he says he's his friend as far as well. And so from that point of view, you have to be supportive of him. I, you have to be supportive of him and you have to be like, look, this might not go our way. I, I believe in you. I have faith in you. But the fact of the matter is, if this is, no matter what I believe or what I say on your behalf, if they come out and say that you're guilty of this and this doesn't clear us, we're going to be stuck. So we have to start thinking about how we can maximize whatever fame you have and how we can spin this and put you in a position where a you can you know stay in some kind of shape and stay relevant around the sport and b that you can make money because this is your only form of income you're not a computer programmer you're not a lawyer you're not a teacher you're an mma fighter and those skills don't necessarily translate over very well into other sports and mma isn't so big where you can just run a camp or or, or things of that nature. So we have to start really thinking about be creative and how we can maintain your use your name and use you use that to springboard you into money making opportunities. And even I'd also have to tell them that even if we get cleared by this, it's going to be a lot of damage done to your reputation. It's going to take a lot of spin, and we're still going to have to start looking at other options because you're beyond your third strike right now as far as public opinion, and you're really going to have to start figuring out some things to do if we get in any sort of spot or, or, or we lose endorsements or we lose opportunities as a result of these sort of things. I mean, you have to be honest with them. But the hard part is, you know, fighters are very temperamental. And uh, if you're that, if you're backing them, they got to really feel like you're 100% on their side. I, I don't know who would have that tough conversation with him about accountability and all that other stuff. I don't know if his manager is able to do that. But if yeah. he is, then you have to have that conversation at some point. Yeah, I think that's all a good point. And, I, and you know, I think, I think you kind of hit on it is, you know, finding, I think what it boils down to is finding ways, because he's still John Jones. I mean, this is brutally bad, but he's still John Jones. So it's finding ways to monetize being John Jones that don't involve actually fighting. Yeah, we'll definitely see how that plays out. I think this is going to be a long fall and winter, at, the, at, least, at the very least, for John Jones when we finally hear what comes down from uh, USADA. So that's one side of the news story. We got a couple of other stories I want to talk about before we get into uh, McGregor Mayweather. Let's talk about the, I want to say probably, well, 
originally this was the biggest fight I thought that was announced this week when um, Leona Machida and Derek Brunson are now fighting at UFC Fight Night 119 in Sao Paulo. But uh, with the addition of Damian Maya and Colby Covington, in my opinion, that's probably the biggest fight on this card. So let's talk about both of those, actually. Um, Leona, it's funny to kind of bring him up now because he's someone that's returning from his own uh, suspension and he's returning to face Derek Brunson. What are your thoughts about Machida coming back? What do you think he will look like? And is this someone that can go on another run in the middleweight division? Uh, well, I, um, I, it's interesting about Machida because, you know, you talk to people, you know, casuals and hardcores and um, you know, everybody's a Lyoto Machida fan, you know, there's just something about him, you know, everybody loves the, you know, the unorthodox style, you know, what have you. So everybody, I think, sort of, sort of, um, you know, wants, wants another run. They, they want to see success from him. And I personally don't see it, you know, I mean, I, maybe I'm wrong, could be wrong. Um, but here he is coming back off of his uh, suspension at the age of 39. I mean, that's that's it's a tall order, you know. Walking right into uh, Derek Brunson too, you know. Um, Machida has um, historically had really terrific takedown defense. I don't know if it's still there. I think the way he actually does the takedown defense doesn't lend itself well to um, to Brunson. You know, I think Brunson's going to be able to have his way. I think Machida's chin is. Suspect. So, I mean, I think it could be uh, a rough night for, for Machida and a great night for, for um, a streaking fighter in, in Brunson. I've never been that sold on Brunson. I think he's got all the athletic talent. He's actually got a decent set of skills as far as the wrestling and the striking, but I've always thought he lacked a little bit of IQ and awareness. Like, he just, he just fights the fight going to put him at the most risk for losing. And I've seen him do that repeatedly in multiple fights. That in the instance that he is terrible against guys who can counter, Yo Romero, even Anderson Silva was able to control his aggression with counters. Uh, Robert Whitaker knocked him out off the counter. He just has not fit, figured out figured out a way to be aggressive, but use controlled aggression to overwhelm you or to break you down. It's like he he just doesn't. Once he gets hit a couple times, he has no sort of poise in the cage, and he doesn't have the IQ to either transition from striking into wrestling consistently and effectively or to switch up his tactics like instead of running right at you I'm gonna draw you in he just you don't see that you don't see that that thought in him he either blows you away and crushes you or he starts winning and then he finds a way to lose and that's been the trend with him for years as far as I've as far as I've seen the thing that works in his favor is Lyoto is like you said coming on a 40 and a lot of his success is based off of quickness reaction time and timing all those things go real quick when you get older and even though he has that unique karate style, that karate style allows you to explode in and explode out. And it kind of lets you, it lets you determine which strikes are being sent at you because your head's a little bit back so guys reach. You can parry and come over the top and counter. But once again, it leaves a lot of holes for guys who can put combinations together and guys who are really going to pressure you. And if your timing isn't top-notch, world-class, and your footwork and your quickness of foot isn't there and your reaction time isn't there, all it does is give them more targets to steadily land on and Leoto's never been a durable fighter never even in his prime he was not a guy who took punishment very well I can't imagine he's much better at 40 but given the division's kind of thin I could see him beating guys in the division but when you start getting into the upper echelon he might be able to get past Brunson because Brunson is terrible with counterfighters and Brunson had a hard time with Silva 
he could barely take down Anderson Silva, and Silva's got terrible takedown defense. So I could see Lyoto beating him, but as far as going on a run, I could easily see Lyoto losing to him, and I can't see her, him going on any meaningful run in the division because there's too many guys who are still athletically superior to him and can take punishment. They're not just <laughs> one-dimensional guys who he can just control with his movement and his, his low-volume output. That's just not going to work anymore. I mean, yeah. he did get outworked by Chris Weidman, and you've seen what happened to Chris Weidman against every single elite middleweight he's faced since. Yeah. And building on something that you said, you know, Machida, you know, his, his quickness is already going very much so. And, you know, after being out 18 months or whatever it was, I mean, yeah, I can't I can't see it being any better. And he's he appears to be compensating for that by, um, you know, kind of just being a little more aggressive. And, you know, Brunson is aggressive, too. But, um, you know, I think I think, you know, Machida kind of covering up his new shortcomings with that style is going to play into Brunson's hands a little bit. Yeah, he's, so, he's attacking the symptom and not the actual problem, which is the technique and the positioning. He's trying to attack the symptom by throwing more and th being more aggressive, which ends up serving you up for more counters from your opponent or their aggression. That, that's what got him in trouble against Weidman. He started trying to be more aggressive and more power and more volume, and he just kept walking into shots and getting trapped and getting taken down as a result. If Derek Brunson wins this fight, what does that mean for him? Is this is this the big the big victory that kind of catapults him into um, consideration? Like I want to say maybe top ten status, or is this just a, is this kind of like the win that he should have gotten over Anderson Silva? I am inclined to believe that um, they. Well, so Brunson just re-signed with the UFC. He just re-upped. So it's days before they made this matchup, or at least announced it. So it is my thinking that they are giving him, thinking this is a high-profile, winnable, put-you-over kind of fight. So maybe, you know, maybe it doesn't convince me as an observer that, you know, this, you know, Derek Brunson now needs to be, you know, a, a this or a that. Um, but uh, I think it would convince the UFC. And I think they would. I think you would see him, uh, you know, start to get fast tracked. Yeah. It depends to me on how he wins the fight. If he wins it like impressively, that's one thing. But if he he still shows the same habits and he gets by because Leota can't take punishment or because he's just old, then that's to me that's no better than the Dan Kelly win. I mean, Leota's on a losing streak coming back in. So beating him, it's a name, but. How much is that really? That's like when Kelvin Gastelum beat up Vitor Belfort. Like, what did that really mean in the middleweight division? Uh, that's definitely a good point there. Um, also, like I said, I, this was the original big fight that was announced this week until the bout between Damian Maya and uh, Kobe Covington got announced. And this one kind of, I don't want to say this one caught me off guard because I feel like Covington's another one of those guys who they're trying to groom right and groom at the right time. And I believe he's coming along right at the right time too even with him taking shots at tyron woodley on twitter which i think was totally uh bush league of him but still even with him taking those shots at tyron at the perfect time and now he's getting a fight against maya in a fight that i think he can win uh i think this is a is, this is a good timing fight for him and it will give him an opportunity to uh kind of not necessarily showcase himself but get that big win to catapult himself in a, in a division that's basically wide open right now yeah Covington is a is a is a rising star for sure um you know college wrestler you know he has 
really, really acquitted himself well just in the cage and just, you know, kind of as an individual. So, uh, you know, I think it makes sense for the UFC to, uh, to want to uh, be fast-tracking him. However, I think that, uh, unfortunately for perhaps Covington's camp, uh, you know, once again, Damian Maya is being underestimated. I, I don't think Maya, you know, I mean, I think Maya is going to do his Maya thing. You know, if I had to bet money, I would bet on Maya. I mean, I think, it, you know, there's a chance Covington would win. But, um, you know, I think it's almost like they just sort of got a little excited and said, oh, hey, Maya just lost. So, you know, that doesn't mean he's very good anymore. So let's just give him to Covington and Covington will will win. And this will be like a great leapfrog for, for the young star. And, you know, knowing how good Maya is, I think it could blow up in their face. I kind of think that they figure Covington's younger and he's more aggressive, so they think that he can kind of build off what Tyron would, Woodley did. But the difference is they're thinking that maybe Covington can beat up Maya a little bit or maybe close the show altogether, which is why I would almost favor Maya too because the, the, secret, the secret to Tyron beating him wasn't trying to finish, wasn't trying to do a huge amount of damage. It was neutralizing what Maya did and doing enough damage, doing little incremental bits of damage that would to turn the fight. Like, he didn't do a whole lot to Maya, but he made sure Maya couldn't get anything done consistently. So all he had to do was a little bit more to win the fight. I think Covington's going to try and put a stamp on the fight to really force a fight with Tyron. Like, you know, you went five rounds with this guy. I finished him in one, or I finished him in two. And that willingness to engage and that willingness to look for a finish to kind of highlight yourself, it could be great because if you finish him, Maya hasn't been finished in a, in a long, in years. But it also opens you up for Maya to get that takedown, to drag you down, and to close the show out. So, I mean, it's, it's a really risky fight for Kevin. It's one that he can win based off his skill set and athleticism. But once again, I don't know that he has the poise against any sort of real veteran fighter because he hasn't really faced an elite-level guy who's got veteran experience and savvy. And Maya is not a dynamic athlete. He's not a great striker. He's a one-dimensional fighter who gets by on being much smarter, much more disciplined, and executing at a much higher level than the opponents he's facing. And when he fought Tyron, he just fought a guy who executed a little bit better and had a world, had world-class athleticism as a safety net. I don't think Covington executes that well. I don't think he's that precise. Well, you know, you two are actually um, not far off at all. I, I Like I said, if I had to pick right now, I would definitely, I would lean towards Kobe. I feel like this is just, this is one of those fights where it's just the right, they came around right at, at the right time. But, you know, we do have some time. This fight is set for October 28th. We definitely have some time before things go down. So some things might change, but I'm, I'm looking forward to this fight. I think it'll be a um, coming out moment for the ATT uh, Walter Raid. So the last thing I wanted to talk about news-wise was Brian Stan. You know, Brian Stan is... It's interesting. Well, first and foremost, the news is that he's leaving the UFC for a real, real estate organization. He's moving on to a new career, and you know I applaud him at that. But Brian Stan is—I I, want to say—he's one of those examples of athletes doing it the right way. And I, I use the right way in, in air quotes, but kind of like the, the proverbial right, right way that everyone understands. You know, we know about his background in in, in the military. We know about his background from playing football to. Being, being in the military, fighting in the WEC, fighting in the UFC, finding success there. But his time as a commentator has been, I want to say, almost even more special in a sense because he spoke 
to the viewer. He spoke to the people watching in a way that could turn that could help casual fans understand what they were watching in a, in a way that was much more different than say a Joe Rogan or a John Anik or someone else. And I think that when we look back on Brian Stanton, even the brief stint of time he had in his position, he's going to be one of the best to do this part of his job, regardless of the success that he had as a fighter and actual athlete. I think that the, the sport itself is losing someone that's very important when he steps away. What do you think about that, Scott? Uh, well, I, I, I agree with all that. Um, I think that it is unfortunate that, um, you know, Stan, for whatever reason, and I would, you know, wish him the best of luck in, in uh, any endeavor he undertakes, you know. But, uh, you know, I think it's unfortunate that he didn't feel, for whatever reason, like, um, you know, UFC commentary was the right thing for him, you know. And I, I don't know why that is, you know, I speculating as to why it would be just that speculation. But, you know, take that for what it is. You know, the UFC has a reputation for, um, you know, how it, uh, you know, goes about its business and goes about its business with its people. And, you know, I don't know what was behind this again, but, um, you know, you would think that this would be uh, a something that would create um, a decades-long career, and it didn't. So that's unfortunate. Uh, next thing is, you know, I think Stan was great as a commentator. I agree with everything you said about him you know, making it relatable to, to um, people that were watching, you know, without condescending to them, um, making, uh, making sense of the complex stuff without, at the same time, um, you know, making uh, a hardcore fan who was very knowledgeable feel like, um, you know, they were losing something. You know, he was able to kind of walk that fine line and, uh, and do it very well. Even more importantly, though, was his, I think, the job he did as an ambassador for MMA, you know, Anik, always referred to him as the greatest living American, you know, and just the way he comported himself and, uh, you know, the way he was uh, kind of a great sort of spokesperson and representative for MMA. Um, that is going to be missed, I think, more than his, um, than his uh, commentary even. Um, because I think that the UFC is lucky in that they have someone who could step right in with Anik or whoever on those broadcasts, and that's Dominic Cruz. I think Dominic Cruz is, um, you know, just incredibly knowledgeable, and he's he's so interesting to watch. I mean, I think sometimes he, um, you know, he doesn't quite have that uh, that common touch that that Stan does as far as um, breaking things down to a level that anybody can understand. But he's still um, very very smart, and you know, he's a funny guy. You know, he's he's entertaining and enlightening to listen to on those broadcasts. So I think they've got somebody they can kind of plug in there. And Dan Hardy's great too. So you know. He can, he can also um, kind of fill that void a little bit. And finally, my final point is that I'm going to be, I'm going to be frank here is that, you know, it's, it's all, it's all going to be a net positive for a little while on the UFC broadcasting scene, in my opinion, because, um, you know, they've got a good play by play man now in, in John Anik, who, uh, you know, I think um, does a good job of um, enhancing the broadcasts when he needs to, uh, and he certainly never detracts from the broadcasts. So there has been uh, an upgrade uh, in that kind of play-by-play -play chair that is um, meaningful, and I think the color commentary job will fill in. And uh, you know, I think it'll. I think it'll all. You know, people miss Brian Stan, but I think it'll be okay. I'm sure it'll be okay. I, I, I miss the professionalism he had. 
Like, he took it. You hear a lot of fighters do commentary. I've heard Julia Pena, Juliana Pena. I've heard other fighters do it. And you can tell it's their part-time gig. You can tell that maybe they're invested in it, but they're only so invested in it because they're still fighting. And I believe as long as you're fighting, at least at an elite level, it's hard to really put the commitment and the effort that he put into it. It's just really hard to do that while you're trying to, you know, like, you have Tony Ferguson was working at a desk once, and he gets in an argument with Kevin Lee. Uh, Dominic Cruz is taking shots at people, and it's entertaining and it's fun, but it kind of takes away from it to a certain degree because they're still in the middle of it. So there's only, they still have a, a somewhat biased point of view. Brian Stan was out of it. And like y'all said, the biggest thing about him that was interesting was he was so relatable and he spoke like a regular person. He would say, yeah, you can't train for 20 hours a day. He would, he had done a career that most people would consider more difficult than MMA. So he never, a lot of times fighters come off as regular people don't have it tough. Regular people don't do what we do. And he always understood that what they do is difficult, but he never made regular people feel like the lives they live and the things they do to pro that provide this income for fighters was less difficult or less challenging or less important. And a lot of fighters miss that when they're talking to fans or they're covering fights. They constantly make comments that are kind of insulting to the fan base who is observing them and paying for them. And finally, the best thing I liked about Brian Sand was he had been in actual war. Like I've known friends who've been in wars and everything, and he would really make you, he was so self, he was self-deprecating and then he'd be like, you know, like, I'd be afraid to get in a fight with Francis Ngannou. We all know Brian Stan's not afraid, but he, when he said it, he believed it. Or when he was talking about a Jim Miller fight, it was one of my favorite things. Jim Miller's brother was cornering him, and Jim and Dan Miller calls him James. And he goes, that's only something a brother can do. He called him James, but when I see him, I call him Jim. And it, it's a stupid thing, but it was just funny because he made it relatable. Because, you know, if you don't know somebody like that, you wouldn't call them by their formal name or some nickname or anything. You call them what they want to be called out of respect to dealing with another man. And he just made it relatable, like, you're like, oh, I can understand that, because there's a guy at my work, I wouldn't do that. That's only something his mom, his dad, his brother would do. So he had that relatable aspect, and I don't think any other fighter really has that. Dominic Cruz doesn't really have that, and I don't know who else they have. Do Joe Rogan's the closest guy to it, but he doesn't have the resume and authority as a former fighter that Brian Stan has. So he's like a combination of, you put Joe Rogan and Dominic Cruz together, you kind of have Brian Stan. And they have guys who can do one or the other, but I don't know that they have a guy who can do both. And he kind of brought John Anik up. John Anik wasn't always great. He was always very good. But I think working with Stan really forced him to up his game. And so Stan helped him out by leaving them a guy and helping that guy develop. But I don't know that he covers the ground that Stan covered when he was doing the job. I think something that's very interesting about Stan leaving and about the kind of the transition that UFC is going through when it comes to a commentary standpoint is that we're finally seeing how important good commentary really is. Um, I think we're seeing, you know, we're seeing Dan Hardy coming up. We're seeing Dominic Cruz coming up. We're seeing uh, Daniel Cormier yeah, coming Bellator. up. Jimmy Smith is good. Yeah, like they're, and we're seeing how great or how important that is to a good production. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm a pro wrestling guy. That's kind of how I ended up getting into mixed martial arts. And we always can point towards good old JR being the voice of good, like being the standard bearer when it comes to good color, color commentary, him and Marlo, uh, Ronaldo, he's probably, a lot of people consider him the best because he's one of the few guys that can go from pro wrestling, can go to kickboxing, can, can come to MMA, can go to regular boxing. boxing. Like He can yeah. do whatever whatever sports you need him to do. So I think that this is very interesting to see. Uh, it's bringing to light just how important good commentary is to strong production value for sports. 
Are you taking shots at Todd Grisham because he he butchered Sakuraba's name? Listen, don't even get me started on that guy. I I, I have to cover a, a glory event tomorrow night, and Todd's going to be on on air probably, and I and I want to throw something at my TV every time I hear his voice. He he actually said that that BJ Penn, he's not that good of a fighter, is he? And I'm like, wow. Yeah. Like, so he, you can't like. I was thinking. I was. I tweeted. I'm like, if you're a fan and you heard him say this and you didn't swing on him, you got to give your MMA card back, man. <laughs> and and I'm gonna use that as a good segue because you know this week we've had uh, some. We're headed into Conor McGregor Floyd Mayweather. We're headed into what people are hailing as the fight of the century, the fight of the generation. It's going to be a, a major moment. And I was actually having a conversation with someone who I know for a fact has no um, kind of historical knowledge of mixed martial arts. Has very little historical knowledge of of boxing. And uh, he came to me talking. He w- I could tell he was reciting commentary that he heard from Stephen A. Smith and Skip Bayless on both of their shows. And, you know, we're talking about commentary. Let's look at, let's look at this fight as a whole. And let's look at kind of the hyperbole that's been brought around it as we are uh, a little bit more than uh, one day away from this fight. When we look back at at this moment, what are we going to think? I I, want to start there and then we'll cover some of the other pieces of, of this, of this fighting and, and uh, of this spectacle. But Scott, when you look at, at this moment and you say, okay, on Saturday, August 26th, Floyd Mayweather and, and Conor McGregor stepped into a boxing arena fight. What are, what are you going to think is the biggest takeaway that we learn across the board from this moment? Well, what I hope it is, you mean when the fight's, when the fight's over? When the fight's over. What I hope it is, is just an understanding of um of how different mma and boxing are i mean just because you know they're, they're just because they're combat sports you know everybody kind of thinks they're they're there's a lot of similarity there you know talking to people who don't follow either sport or only follow boxing um that is their impression and you know it's the same they're they're the same the way that you know a stick and ball sport the way that basketball and baseball are the same so in my opinion so you know i I think that, you know, when it's done, there will be an understanding that, okay, we had a fun summer here, you know, we had a carnival, you know, we all, you know, the circus came to town and we all had a good time, but, um, you know, this is probably something that doesn't make sense to regularly um, get in the habit of doing. I, I think the biggest thing they realize is that when it comes to star power, it's going to be star power and that you can't really create stars. You can maximize people's stardom, but you can't create stars. Some people have it and some people don't. And this is a prime example of somebody who has it. There's people who have won a lot of fights. There's people who have knocked people out in an exciting manner. They didn't have the cachet. They didn't have the charisma. They didn't have the business sense of Mayweather or McGregor. And that's not something you can just give everybody. Everybody keeps blaming promotions for not making them big stars. Mayweather made himself a big star. He wasn't a star for the majority of his majority of his uh, his career. And people say, well, he fought Arturo Gatti, he fought Oscar De La Hoya, and that helped him get big. True, but a lot of guys fought Oscar De La Hoya. Shane Mosley ain't a big star. Fernando Vargas wasn't a big star. Bernard Hopkins beat Oscar De La Hoya. How come he's not a big star? There's guys who beat Conor McGregor. Why aren't they big stars? It's not just a matter of fighting name guys. It's how you build up the fight. It's how you promote yourself consistently. It's like taking the promotion 
in that aspect of it as seriously as you take a fight. And it's gonna, and it, that's the, the thing that I'm gonna take, think more people take from it more than anything, because everybody from fans to media to fighters, push this guy, push that guy, give that guy an opportunity to be a star. It's not just about opportunity, it's about what you do with the opportunity and how you treat the opportunity. And a lot of that's based on who you are, where you come from, and your approach to, or your approach to the business. Some guys get it, and some guys don't. Mayweather and McGregor get it, and a lot of fighters who are gonna complain about their paychecks and complain about this farce and this circus, they don't get it. And that's why they're not making this kind of money in their individual sports or their or, or a mix of the sports. As Leonard Ellerby said, all these, all these boxers are laughing at Conor McGregor they should be asking him, how do I put myself in position for a $100 million payday? And MMA fighters should be asking Floyd Mayweather the same thing because he was just as unpopular as the majority of them. But he made it, he created a space for himself. And that's, that's the biggest thing I think is gonna be taken from this fight. If you can create a big enough space, anything can happen. You can cross boundaries, you can cross sports, you can do whatever, but you have to create that space for yourself. Schwan, I got a follow-up question for you, I'm curious. Um, and this is a legit question. So, um, you know, when WME IMG bought the UFC, as you know, everybody was kind of assuming that, you know, they were there to cultivate stars and that, you know, what an area where maybe Zufa, you know, they, you know, stars kind of fell into their lap every now and then, Rosie McGregor or what have you. But they thought, oh, WME IMG is going to make like sort of more of a concerted effort to find and cultivate stars within the ranks of the UFC um, you know and, and to date they haven't they haven't done much of that I mean do you think that that role kind of lies with the promoter or is it just some something that kind of happens organically um, you know within within like the person within the fighter themselves or or what do you think me personally I, I blame fighters for it because the main thing about every fighter and it's, it's bad in boxing too to be honest a lot of fighters, they just want to fight. They're like, I just want to fight. I don't want to travel all over doing publicity. I don't want to talk to every single media outlet. I don't want to say anything crazy. I want to present myself this way. There's a price for doing business, whether you do the Mayweather, McGregor route, or you take the quiet martial artist, Damian Maya route. There's a price to pay for each of it. If you want to be professional and keep your mouth shut and just do your job, fine. But guys who do that only get paid their salary. They only get minor sponsorships and they don't get pushed unless you are exceptional 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 at your job if you want more attention and you want more time you have to treat that like you treat your fighting career like anybody would treat a regular career and these guys are lazy they don't want to do it. i talk to a lot of fighters well you know i'm not that kind of guy i don't want to embarrass my family i don't want to embarrass myself fine now conor mcgregor doesn't have the legit legitimacy and respect that some of these other guys get but they don't have the money and the opportunities that he gets because he's willing to put himself out there. He's willing to sacrifice training time to promote, to get his name out there, to travel all over the world doing 15,000 face-offs and interviews with Aldo and Mendez and Alvarez. He's willing to do whatever it takes to get to the end result. And he's very honest about that. And other guys don't want to do that. All the promotion can do is put you in position. They can put you up against big names. They can put you on a headlining cards. But if you're saying they have to pour millions of dollars into you just to get, if, they, if I have to pour 20 million into you to get 5 million out, how does that benefit me? You have to go above and beyond. People like Amanda Nunes, she doesn't set up her own stuff. She doesn't create her own opportunities. Conor McGregor did. And, and, there's, and WME's tried to cultivate some stars. They tried to do Sage, they tried to do Paige Van Zandt, but they just weren't able to win. They had the, 
they had a little bit of cachet, but they weren't able to win. And to be a star, you have to be able to do both things because winning legitimizes your star power, but being a star is just about based off what you do individually. Conor McGregor, Uriah Faber, Donald Cerrone to an extent, John Jones, even Daniel Cormier, they've created lanes for themselves. These other guys just think that if I keep winning fights, that's going to be enough. And that's never been enough in any sport, any business venture, or any combat sport. You have to do more than just fight or just do your job to really become a star. Every great star has done more than just their job. You can't name me one breakout huge star who's just done their job and that's all that's all they've done. I can't name one in any sport. Yeah, I would definitely uh, agree with you there because Connors, not only has he won, as you mentioned, but he's done some other things that has allowed him to become the star that an individual such as maybe Frankie Edgar, who's had maybe more more important fights um who has has done in his ufc career but he hasn't reached a level of star power i mean he's even eclipsed eclipsed uh ronda to an extent you know i I still kind of i still love to have the debate of who's the bigger star between him and her and i think it's going to be i think this weekend will kind of solidify it for him when we think about this fight from a athletic from a, a boxing match standpoint what are some of the things you're looking for when this fight starts uh, Saturday evening, what are some of the tactical points that you think both men will employ? Sean, let's start start with with you there. Um, I think Mayweather really is going to try to do what he said. I think he's going to try to walk him down. The fact of the matter is, this is the point I keep on arguing with people again because people keep telling me about angles, weird punches. But the fact of the matter is, it's still boxing. No matter how much, it's like being in football where you have a bunch of different formations but you're still running the same plays. Basically, what you're hoping is the stance, the formation, and the movement is going to take break your attention or rhythm enough that you can't stop. What's good, it's still going to be a left hook. It might be a little bit different looking left hook, but still left hook, still a straight right, still a cross. It's still boxing technique. And, it, and I don't care, eight ounce, eight ounce gloves, all this other stuff, it's still boxing. And there's lots of boxers who use awkward punching technique, awkward defensive, awkward rhythm. Has anybody ever heard Nassim Hamed? Very awkward. Junior Witter, very awkward. Manuel Medina, very awkward. Even Maidana, very awkward. So I don't know that this whole awkwardness and weirdness is, is how effective it's going to be. The only thing I can see as far as Connor, he's going to have to put pressure on the Greg, on Mayweather. He's not outboxing him for 12 rounds. He's not going to stay at range and jab and pull counter and check hook with Mayweather. That's not going to happen. That eliminates every single physical advantage he has as far as his length, his size his supposed power advantage. He's going to have to put pressure. He's going to have to throw combinations. And he's going to have to be able to walk through some punishment to get to Mayweather. Because no matter how much pressure he puts on Mayweather, whether Mayweather runs or stands in front of him, Mayweather is going to be able to counter him and punch him between his punches, defend his shots, and make him work. McGregor's used to being the superior boxer. All the, all the unique things he does in MMA, they're all boxing. It's boxing with some karate. So he's used to having the advantage, having the sharper hands, having the better reflexes, having the better defense, the better distance control. And he's not going to have any of that coming in against Mayweather. So to me, the only approach he can have is to make it physical, to throw a lot of volume, and try to overwhelm Mayweather with the volume and try to make him work to kind of make him fade and basically just punch through whatever Mayweather. He throws shoulder rolls, hit him wherever you can, and break him down. The bad part about that is Mayweather's already faced that. Chino Madonna tried that. Canelo Alvarez tried that. So I, I don't I don't know I don't know what Mayweather Mayweather's gonna do, whether he's gonna try to counter aggressively or walk him down. 
but he can do he can do any, anything he wants in a boxing in boxing ring. We know that for a fact. The hard thing about McGregor is we've never seen him box, so we don't really know what he can do. Past all we can do is come up with ideas based on what we've seen him do in the UFC, and based on what I've seen him do in the UFC, he's not gonna be able to get that game plan off against. Mayweather. He's going to have to use volume. He's going to have to use his size. He's going to have to use aggression. He's going to have to hit him wherever he can to hopefully disrupt Floyd or take him out of his game or catch him with something he's not looking for and put him away. But Floyd's been facing that for the past 20 years. So it's, unless Floyd just gets old overnight, I don't know what approach he would use that would be consistently effective. But that's the, that's, that's the clearest approach I can come up with. It's just a lot of volume, physicality, and pressure and trying to push Mayweather to the ropes and hold him there and work him over and break him down. Yeah, yeah, that's that that all that all seems right. I mean, what keeps what what I'm reminded of when I um, think about uh, you know the early phases of the fight is um, a scene from Million Dollar Baby. I'm sure you've both seen it, where um, Hillary, where Clint Eastwood um, and Hillary Swank are in the corner between rounds, and uh, Hillary Swank has a broken nose. And, you know, Clint Eastwood sort of doctors the nose and says, uh, you know, okay, you got 30 seconds before, you know, before the nose becomes a gusher and the ref stops the fight. So you got 30 seconds for the knockout. That, that, that is the, that is, that kind of mindset, I think, is what Connor is going to kind of need here. You know, he's, he's got to, he's got to come out, you know, I mean, he's, he's never been, he's never been five rounds, much less 12. I mean, I know the minute I know the the minute counts are different, and they're different sports. But um, you know, I think he's gonna he's gonna need to be aggressive early. Yeah, there's gonna need to be um, pressure. You know, he's he's not gonna have his kicks to set things up, so he's gonna need to get in there. Um, you know, the end of his left arm has a powerball ticket on it, and you know he's gonna need to um, just throw that powerball ticket and and uh, hope it cashes, hope it wins, and. I mean, that's about it. You know, I think, I think he, um, you know, he'll, he will need certainly, yeah, to throw, um, to throw to flurry a lot more than, than he, than he has in the UFC. And then, you know, I, I could see him sort of rushing in, you know, kind of firing off what he wants to fire off and then, uh, you know, kind of landing in the clinch and, you know, kind of, kind of going from there, you know, hoping he can tire Mayweather out. But, um, you know, uh, yeah, I, I think, I think that's, the, I think that's the basic strategy. So, yeah, it's been so interesting. Connor's gonna have. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, this, like when people have been talking about tactics for leading up up to this fight, this has been announced. The, the big, the big, I guess, takeaway is that no one really has any idea on how Mayweather is going to. Unless me, not Mayweather. Excuse me. How McGregor is going to take this fight, and I've been thinking a lot about it. After, initially, I thought it was going to kind of seem more like the fight that Floyd had against. Arturo Gotti, but I was listening to, I can't remember who it was earlier this week, but they compared it a lot to the fight against Ricky Hatton, and I went went back and watched that fight, uh, I want to say earlier on, early Sunday, and it was interesting to see because Hatton had some early success in that fight, and that's kind of what Floyd does, fighters have early success uh, against him, is what happens from rounds like four on, that people seem to, it just goes off the rails, and I wonder if that's really what this fight is going to look like, if, if we're going to see a situation where we see someone trying to get Floyd out of there the same way Hatton was, and it just it led to his downfall, because it was a counter, it was a counter shot that put 
that put hot and head out of there that send them flying headfirst into the um the turnbuckle so i wonder if that's what this fight is going to look like more than something that's more un- unpredictable as people are kind of playing it are playing it up to be well the, the thing about it is a lot of boxers know how to box but just like a lot of guys in, in the mma know how to strike but the thing is they, they're comparing it a box a boxing master against an mma master conor mcgregor is not even an mma striking master there's very obvious holes in his game so he, he he doesn't have the whole concept of striking in his own sport down much less in boxing floyd mayweather the thing is he's such a student he's been growing up boxing he, there there's spots you can get him in but the thing about it is floyd's aware of everything he's not like fighters who like my defense a little suspect so i mask it with volume my counter's a little suspect or i'm a counter puncher but my i'm not good at moving my feet or moving my head so i depend on my chin to get me through so I can land the counter. Floyd actually knows, has a solution for every single style, every single weapon, every single tool that you would have in a boxing in a boxing match. Now, just being a fighter and being against a high level guy, high level athlete, you're gonna get touched, you're gonna get hit, you're gonna have some rough moments, even if it's just 10 seconds of a fight. But the fact is Floyd has an answer. So when he actually fights somebody, he makes legitimate technical adjustments. He doesn't just, look for a knockout. He doesn't just throw for power. He doesn't just sit down on his punches. He starts doing things that take away the things you want to do best. If you want to get physical with them and bang it out on the inside, he ties you up. If you want to tie him up, he starts working through your tie-ups and starts banging your body, short uppercuts, hooks over the top. You want to establish your jab, he starts hitting you with the pull counter. You want to try to muscle your way in, he'll start jabbing to the body to disrupt your rhythm. And then your foot works off, and and he's cutting into your gas tank. Then he starts coming up over the top. He'll let you push him on the ropes, and he'll start leaning and ducking and rolling, let you wear yourself out. And then when you start slowing, that's when he starts upping his work rate, counterpunching you, pushing you back, forcing you on the back foot because he knows the only reason you're coming hard at him is because your counter ability and your defensive game is suspect. He's got a legitimate every single answer for every single situation in every part of the ring. So when McGregor and his people are hoping that because because Mayweather's not sharp, because he's going to be smaller, because he's not a big puncher, that he's going to be able to impose his will on him. And unless Floyd's totally goes old overnight, there's no way that happens logically. Now, we don't know what McGregor's going to do because nobody's seen him box. He's not a novice boxer. He boxed at a decent level before. But the fact of the matter is there's so many holes in his own game that he gets by on using volume, physicality, and durability. That, that's not going to cut it in a fight like this because he's not facing a guy who he can intimidate, a guy he can outbox, or in my opinion, a guy he can outwork. He's literally thinking his only chance is to beat him up or to stop him. And that's very unlikely because Mayweather's taking good shots before. And even when he gets hit, he doesn't get hit clean 90% of the time. So you're asking, you're asking him to beat or outclass a guy who's been in every circumstance against every single type, guys who come into the ring bigger than McGregor. McGregor's going to come in at 175. Canelo came in at 175, and Canelo can actually box. So the only thing that you can hope for is that something crazy happens, and they can disrupt him or get him off his, his mindset of focus, or maybe he didn't prepare correctly. But given who Floyd Mayweather is, the chances of that happening are slim to none because he has a lot to lose in this fight. If he loses this fight or looks bad in this fight, this hurts his brand, this hurts his promotion, this hurts him across the board. He has speaking engagements and everything based off him being undefeated, him being the very best. Him losing to an 0-0 professional boxer takes all that away. So he's got a reason to compete. He's got a reason to win. He's got a reason to go out there and get that money. He's not just out there cruising, Cadillacing. 
people act like Connor's the only hungry guy in this. Connor has nothing to lose. He gets knocked out, nobody cares. He gets outboxed, everybody expects that. Mayweather's actually the guy whose reputation and legacy is on hand here. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I would add to that, just a couple things, is, I mean, uh, you know, I, there, there's no way Floyd takes this fight if, if he doesn't think it's in a pretty easy win. I mean, this is sort of the, this is sort of the capper to his, to his career. I mean, he, you know, this is all muscle memory for him. He's been boxing since the age of four, I think. Um, Connor's been boxing, you know, I mean, I realize he's been, you know, training boxing, but for all intents and purposes, officially, he's been boxing since Saturday. So, you know, there's, there's a difference there. And, and the, uh, you know, I, you know, uh, Schwan, you mentioned the, the jab to the body, you know, I mean, I think it's a little ironic that Connor, um, you know, is known, you know, a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of fans like to, like to admire uh, his body shots in the octagon. I think he might um, fall victim to some body shots uh, to hear, especially, you know, as he gets inside, tries for the clinch and things. I mean, um, arguably uh, Mayweather's best punch is that, is that jab to the body. He uses that a lot. Um, he also has, you know, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't call him a a, uh, a power hitter, but you know he he has power. It's it's not you know he is not he is not devoid of all power. So I think um, you know I think Connor, you know I'm sure he knows that, but but um, you know we we might see him get uh, get punished a little bit with that same weapon that he's punished other people with when he was in the UFC. So uh, you know that um, that could be an interesting little uh, a little side piece there. So let's talk what if moments here. If we wake up or if we go to bed Saturday or early Sunday morning, because this fight's probably not going to be over until after midnight, what is the sports landscape like if Conor McGregor picks up a win uh, against Floyd Mayweather on Saturday? Scott, what do you think the, the sports world will, will be like? <laughs> that, would be, that would be quite a thing. Yeah, I think he would be... Um, on the cover of a lot of non-sports magazines. I think he, I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to say he'd be the biggest star in sports, but he would very quickly be right in that conversation. He would, um, you know, I mean, I can't even imagine the sort of um, offers he would have. I mean, you know, Pauli Malignaggi, you know, coming out of, uh, coming out of retirement, you know, would, would be, you know, a quick one. And then, you know, the UFC contender line would be a mile long. He would, he would become, you know, he's sort of, he, I mean, he's a very rich person right now. And he postures as, you know, I think he, he almost postures that he's, that he's richer than he probably actually is. And, you know, he'll be extremely wealthy after this win or lose. But I think he will, um, you know, kind of have a status. He'll, he'll have an external status to match his own internal status. I'll put it that way. What about you, Sean? What happens if, if Conor McGregor picks up a win on Saturday? Yeah, I think he'd be almost unbearable. I mean, he. <laughs> the I mean, what, what could you tell him? Who who in the UFC could tell him anything? I mean, he'd he'd essentially be the biggest name in, in MMA. He'd be the biggest name in boxing, and he'd have everybody from 147 to junior middleweight or middleweight trying to pick a fight with him. He'd have everybody elite. MMA guys calling him out, elite boxing guys calling him out, all begging him to fight and offering him all sorts of crazy money to fight. I mean, Twitter will collapse. If he wins, Twitter will be shut down for days. The internet will collapse upon itself. And Vegas will have to go go away for a while because they're going to lose so much money. 
they will lose so much money, Vegas might shut down for like the next month. Because the payday on, on McGregor is just crazy. So he would just become an all-time sports figure. Like not just in Ireland. He'd be an Ireland national hero. He'd be a hero in America. And he'd be in every record book. And he, he would essentially not have to work ever again. Just off beating Floyd Mayweather, that's how much that, that fight would mean to him. He would have speaking engagements. He'd have movies. He'd have books. He'd have documentaries. He'd have interviews. They'd probably have him analyzing boxing fights. I mean, he he would have, the whole world would be open to him and he'd be unbearable and he would literally be running both games and running the sports industry. Like, I mean, he'd be LeBron James level big, if not bigger. I was listening to, I was actually reading something, uh, I want to say yesterday when it was Rocky Marciano Jr. talking about how if Floyd wins, his 15-0 doesn't count. You know, he's definitely talking about his father and, and the record that his father um holds right now at this point do you guys think that if Floyd gets this win over a guy who's 0-0 does that tarnish his legacy of being a 50-0 fighter does that kind of diminish what he's done throughout his career and if this is the way he caps it off does it count or does this fight come with an asterisk of of sorts I was just thinking about this uh, today actually um, to me I think, well, I don't think he can become the best boxer ever. I think that's Muhammad Ali, and that's, that's you know, sort of settled. But uh, I also think that I wouldn't, I wouldn't say asterisk around this win or around 50-0, but um, he, he will always, you know, the, there's an asterisk in that that case can be made. There, it's... it's um, if someone wants to say, hey, it's not a clean 50 and 0, then they have the ability to do that. I don't know. As a boxing fan, I mean, I've known a lot of trainers. I know a lot of fighters. Have you, you know, there's a lot of stuff behind the scene. There's got, I mean, Rocky Marciano actually had a, they referred to some of his opponents as the bum of the month club because they weren't good fighters. They were like beyond mediocre fighters. I think one guy he beat was one and four in his total career. He was 0-1 when Rocky Marciano first fought him. And yeah, he had an amateur bat boxing experience, but he wasn't anywhere near a world-class athlete or a fighter on any level. And that counted towards him. If Mayweather gets beat, that's gonna be a legitimate loss. In boxing, the way they do the sport, there's guys fighting mismatches all the time. The only reason this is getting so much publicity is A, he might break the record, and B, he, people have an issue with Floyd Mayweather because in a lot of his biggest wins, he didn't fight guys at the peak of their abilities. He didn't fight Shane Mosley at his peak. He didn't fight uh, Manny Pacquiao at his peak. He fought Juan, Man, Juan Manuel Marquez. He came in overweight for that fight, and Marquez was already getting older. He fought Ricky Haddon, but I, he fought Ricky Haddon, but Ricky Haddon was kind of tailoring towards his end as far as being the world-class athlete that he is. A lot of the guys he fought were guys who were on the downside. Even when he fought Andre Berto, Andre Berto wasn't anywhere near his prime when he fought him. You know, Robert the Ghost Guerrero wasn't near his prime when he fought him. And so they're legitimate wins and they're wins over names, but the timing of the wins and the circumstances under which the wins happen is why people put an asterisk to say he's not the best ever. Because Muhammad Ali, even though he wasn't as good a technical boxer, he fought guys in their prime. He fought the best Hall of Fame guys at their prime at the peak of their power. Same Pacquiao did that often. Sugar Ray Robinson did that. Sugar Ray Leonard, Thomas Hagler did that. Mayweather always picked his spots where he could get prime money but he wasn't getting prime competition. That's where all this is coming from. But the fact of the matter is a win is a win and a loss is a loss. 
and boxing is one of the most corrupt sports out there. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pick pick and choose to attack Floyd Mayweather when almost every major fighter has had some easy walkover fight against a guy who should not have been in the ring against them, amateur experience or not. I mean, they have guys who've got less than four amateur fights fighting as pros right now, fighting pros who've got 10, 11 fights, gold medalists, amateurs with 200 plus fights. How's that? That's no worse than this. The only difference is this is on a major market, it's getting major play and it's for major money. But this type of stuff happens in boxing all the time. And to be honest, it happens in MMA too. So MMA can't act like they're better than this either. So I don't take that criticism seriously. I understand why his son's saying it, but if he looked really close at his dad's records of all his opponents, he, he wouldn't be able to speak so confidently in this manner. Hey, his dad did beat Joe Lewis, though. <laughs> his dad, even though Joe Lewis was like 80 years old when it happened. But, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's an interesting point that was brought up earlier in this week. Let's talk long term. You know, there, there is one other group that I want to talk about when it comes to this situation, and that's the the UFC as a whole. What do they stand to gain both immediately and long term? Is a victory for Conor McGregor a shot in their arm that it, it gives them a boost that we'll see, um, we'll see them have stronger events, see them have stronger per, um, event buys, or is this something that just impacts Conor McGregor and when he fights? Like, what's the long term play for them? an interesting question. Uh, I saw something a couple of days ago where Dana White threw out the idea of, um, you know, giving an ownership stake to, to McGregor. So we'll, you know, that's something that McGregor has, has wanted and sort of openly advocated for himself for, for quite a while. So, you know, long term, if that's something that happens, you know, I think that would be um, a, a very interesting development that um, I don't know what effect that specifically might have on the UFC. But um, you know, it would certainly um, you know be something that might shape the landscape a little bit. As far as as far as um, you know, fighting, people have said that Conor may not come back uh, after after this fight. That you know he doesn't want to take too much damage. That he wants to kind of get out while he's young and healthy, and you know move on to bigger and better things. You know whether it's being a promoter or what have you. So I I actually don't think that's the case. I, you know I had a chance to to interview Conor very early in his UFC career, I mean, days after he signed. And he said then, you know, something that I've heard, you know, sort of, you know, that, that I've seen resonate throughout his interviews over the years, which is that he just um, badly needs to be kept busy. It's something in his personality, something in the way that his brain is wired. You know, he just needs something to work on a project. And, you know, we've seen that in the UFC. You know, he has, he has always, you know, there's always been, you know, the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. You know, he's always busy. And, you know, I mean, he's been, you know, fortunate to stay healthy, but he's certainly not, you know, shied away from, from, uh, from engaging with, with, you know, all sorts of different things. So I think that that will continue to be the case here. I think he will, you know, it's sort of the, the shine will wear off from this. You know, the money will, the dust will settle, the money will be in the bank, and, you know, he'll buy what he wants to buy and do what he wants to do. And then, and then he will, you know, he will get bored, and he will come back, is my opinion. And then... You know, then the UFC will will have its uh, big star again. I don't think he'll return to boxing. I mean, maybe he will with with Paulie. I don't know. I think but I personally don't sense that will be the case. I think he'll come back to MMA. You know, he'll start to um, you know address this line of challengers, and he'll just be the king of all he surveys within the show. And uh, you know, we'll, we'll uh, just go from there. But I think his presence there will be helpful. My concern with him coming back is if he gets paid a lot of money 
the one thing I like about boxing over MMA is that you can, you can make money a lot of different ways. If you fight Floyd Mayweather and you're a boxer, no matter what you're contracted for, you, you get the highlight payday of your career. If Conor McGregor goes back to UFC, he's going to get more money per fight, but whoever he's facing is just going to get their contracted money. So if he doesn't come back and he doesn't evoke some kind of change as far as the pay scale, it's going to be a real indictment upon the UFC. Because you can say that he's the big star, but they're going to look to boxing and say, well, when, when he fought Floyd, the bigger star, he got a career high payday. Why am I fighting Conor McGregor and I'm getting, you know, 35 and 35 or 100 and 100? I mean, he went to fight Floyd. He went from making a couple million to making 100 million. Like, based off the challenge I'm facing, I should make more money. I should be able to benefit off this, even if I don't beat Conor McGregor. Because people who fought Floyd Mayweather, they benefited. They got other fights at higher paydays. They got crossover potential. Look at Victor Ortiz. He was getting career-high paydays after after fighting Floyd. He got movie opportunities. Shane Mosley made a lot of money fighting Floyd, made a lot of money fighting Oscar De La Hoya. But in the mixed martial arts, you're just contracted to what you're contracted. You get what you get. And they're going to make an exception for Conor. And I don't see how that doesn't cause problems among the rest of the fighters in the organization. That's the biggest change that I think he might make in the fact that they're going to have to pay him so much more money because there's no way he comes back to fight in the UFC for $5 million again, not after a $100 million payday. And if he actually looks halfway decent against May Mayweather, he could probably make at least another 20, 25 fighting Malinaji or somebody else. And if he wins, oh, well, he might as well just stay in Boston because he's going to be able to demand $100 million paydays every time he fights. The UFC can't. The UFC doesn't have that kind of money. The best benefit for them is that they get a lot of money because they're co-promoting and they're getting a percentage of that purse and pay-per-view and ticket sales and all that kind of stuff. But outside of that, him him winning or him getting more leverage with them, I think that actually hurts them long term. It, it affects the company and affects the people fighting in it because they're going to start asking these questions. Why did Connor have to go over here to make this money? Why couldn't he make this money here? Why couldn't y'all pay Mayweather to come over here? He wouldn't have come, but why couldn't y'all even offer him? How is Connor making $25 million to fight me and I'm making 25000 Like, how does that make any sense? I, I think those are the kind of questions that are going to come up if he comes back to the UFC. Well, there may be a decision to, to, to be made, and that's, that's Connor's decision to make entirely. I mean, none of this stuff is going to change unless, um, unless the fighters unionize. And that unionization effort is going to have to be led probably by a, a popular active fighter. And, you know, Connor certainly is that guy. And, you know, could, you know, I think he could form a successful unionization effort if he so chose, but, you know, might require some sacrifice on his, on his part. So, um, you know, I mean, that could very well be something that's on the frontier and that's, that's, um, that rests with Connor. I actually thought of something very interesting too when I thought about what's next for Connor and also Floyd at the same time. But what if, you know, we find ourselves in a situation where Floyd and Connor begin to work together the same way that um, Oscar De La Hoya and like Bernard Hopkins and Shane Mosley did? Because I've I've read about Mayweather talking about promoting MMA fights in the past, but he said that he's never seen someone who could be that star that he could build around. Well, he's fighting that star on Saturday. So are we headed towards a situation where these two guys fight and then they become business partners after the fact and we find Mayweather segueing into promoting MMA to go along with the boxing that he's already promoting? Are we that much closer to seeing that situation occur? I think it's possible. Sure. 
you know, I mean, Mayweather, you know, he's he's always shown that he has uh, good business acumen, and Connor has sort of shown those inclinations too. So, and one thing, and I've seen, I've, I, they have, you know, there's been, you know, the trash talk and everything like that, but, you know, it's not hard to read between the lines. And, you know, before the fight was made, you know, during some of this hype, you know, you can read things and you can see the subtext, which is that, you know, these, there's a lot of respect between these two guys. And, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised at all to see them go into business uh, with each other, whether it be, you know, MMA, boxing, or both. It, it makes sense. I mean, McGregor's has a promotional company now, and being connected with Floyd Mayweather opens a lot of doors automatically. I mean, that's why Hopkins and Mosley got with De La Hoya. They gave De La Hoya that extra legitimacy of having, ha having legendary fighters, helping him promote and talking to aspiring fighters. And De La Hoya gave them dates. He got them dates. He got some HBO contracts. He got them ESBO contracts, all based off the strength of his popularity. McGregor could do the very same thing for, I mean, excuse me, Mayweather could do the very same thing for McGregor because Mayweather's got relationships with all these all these places that the UFC fights in. He's got personal relationships with these guys. He's even, you know, for all the issues people make about his money or his, how he handles his money, he still has a great deal of pull across the board in all sporting, in all sporting coverage in all these places. You know, Floyd Mayweather showing up is an event. And I, I've heard from people I know who know him who said he's interested in getting into MMA. But like you said, he's looking for a guy who he can really build off of and create a stable and and kind of put him in a position where he had some kind of pull. Because even even though he's a name in MMA, he doesn't have any he doesn't have his hooks in where he has any sort of real cachet, like real legitimate qualities or legitimate currency with the UFC fighters or MMA fighters. But in getting Connor paid and getting Connor into the next level of superstardom, he can always point to this. Like, he, they can talk, Dana can talk about we've made it happen, the UFC can say we let it happen. But Floyd Mayweather is the one who kept pushing for this fight. Every interview, every opportunity, McGregor, 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 McGregor. He essentially made McGregor this $100 million fight. The same way McGregor turned um, Eddie Alvarez's bum life around, Floyd Mayweather did it for Connor McGregor. And he's making the UFC a bunch of money. He's paying off their debt because they were—they're not able to generate that money in and of themselves with their own sport. So, Connor, so Floyd's making a very big statement on the impact he can have for the sport as a whole, and for individuals in the sport who are willing to play ball and are willing to push themselves and willing to take on challenges and willing to push the limits. Because right now he's the biggest earner in MMA. He's the guy who's creating the biggest money for the MMA. UFC isn't paying Connor uh, a record-breaking amount. Floyd Mayweather is getting Connor this record-breaking route. UFC didn't, didn't help Connor set up his promoter, his promotion license, and all that stuff. That's happening because of Mayweather. His stars are getting big, bigger because of Mayweather. He's known across all forums and all media platforms because of Mayweather. It's got nothing to do with the UFC. The UFC, the UFC got him to a certain level. Mayweather's taking him to a whole nother one. And all this is going to be tracked back to Mayweather. And more fighters, I think, are going to see that and say, you know, maybe he can do something for me. Maybe he can help me out with my contract. Maybe he can get me on ESPN. Maybe he can do something that's going to put me in a better spot. Because the UFC, the UFC has so many guys who haven't, who are unhappy with where they are, with either their management or the UFC's treatment of them. They're thinking maybe someone with Mayweather's money and cachet can bring some light to things and put me in a position where I can be, if not as big a star as him, I can make money comparable or somewhere better than what I'm making right now. In some ways, as, as Connor loves to say, you know, Floyd Mayweather is giving him his own Red panty night. Very true. Right. 
Uh, that's the way that's going down. So um, I want to say definitely thank you, Scott, for coming on the show tonight and chatting with us about all the news and everything that's going on in mixed martial arts today and it's going to cross the sports spectrum. Um, why don't you let us know what are some of the projects that you're working on that fans that, that sports fans can uh, look forward to seeing? Well, um, there's there are a couple. I don't want to. They're they're still kind of in the works, so I don't want to jinx them by by being specific. But one thing that I am doing is, um, you know, I'm following. You know, I, I like to follow fighters for for a period of days. You know, as they go about their daily lives, to get um, you know kind of more insight into them. And I like to also do reporting on, um, you know, kind of the issues of the sport. You know, I've done things before on uh, fighter pay. I've done things on weight cutting. I've done things on head injuries. So, you know, it's, um, it's a lot of that sort of stuff uh, is really kind of my bread and butter. So, um, Bleacher Report MMA, I'll be there. And what about you, Schwann? What are some of the things you're uh, working on today? Uh, recently, I'm working on, uh, I just got done writing an article for, for, another, for a combat press regarding Sarah McMahon and her, her, her potential title challenging if she wins her next fight and why she should, a case for and against her getting a title shot and I'm actually right now working on a a kind of overall MMA for dummies breakdown of the whole Shevchenko Nunes fight and kind of covering why this fight's happening certain trends to look for strengths weaknesses and what the fight means for the division and for women's MMA as a whole um, like I said I'm trying to do a, a couple other things that kind of address other aspects of MMA journeymen prospects um, camps fight iq just just trying to expand in my writing a little bit and not just keep keep it uh analysis based or matchup based try to educate people more on combat sports as a whole good stuff man well we always appreciate your work when you um get it up on ratings i just put up a piece that's like a viewer's guide to watching mayweather and mcgregor uh for saturday so that should probably be out and around tomorrow um so for everyone to see and working on a couple other pieces as well we got adcc coming up this week uh, or excuse me in a couple of weeks so i'm working on some preview pieces for that grappling uh super event as well too so with that in mind schwan uh schwan and scott i want to say thank you both for being on the show tonight. We appreciate both of your time and uh, we look forward to whatever it is that, that you're doing next. We we love having you here and we, we hope to have you back on again sometime in the future. Yeah, thank, you yeah, thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. No problem. Thank you everybody for listening. Please feel free to like our content here on YouTube across um, SoundCloud. Sure YouTube SoundCloud. There you go. Swan knows all of them. I always forget some of them. So I appreciate all you guys for listening to us and have a great week, everyone. I'm the I'm the gold the Goldberg of the crew. I hit yeah. all of the spots, the commercials. <laughs> you hit all the spots, man. I definitely appreciate that. Scott, thank you for being here, man. All right, thank you. Take care. No problem. Have a great night, everyone. You too. Bye. -bye.